The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, give your inner babysitter the night off and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 464 with guest Aaron Erickson, recorded live Tuesday, June 30th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who never confuses confusion with a lack of understanding, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Richard will be here in a minute. Hey, guess what? It's about that time for a new Mondays. I know you've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and we're busy, and we're sorry. But I think you'll like this one. Truck on over to mondays.prop.com. Uh, if it's not there today, check tomorrow. It's just a matter of logistics and time. I think you're going to like this one. If you don't know what Mondays is, uh, it's, uh, hmm, what can I say about Mondays? It's it's kind of funny. It's definitely not safe for work. And it involves Richard, me, and Mark Miller, and Karen Mangicotti, and uh, a lot of goofiness. Uh, did I mention that it's not safe for work? Good. So don't play it while you're at work. All right. Well, no email and better no framework today. Just wanted to mention that there's a new Mondays either today or tomorrow. Go check it out, mondays.pop.com. Now let's get on with our interview. Our guest today is Aaron Erickson. Aaron is the author of The Nomadic Developer, a field guide to the occupation of technology consultant. Aaron is a veteran technology consultant, writer, and lead consultant with ThoughtWorks Incorporated. He has spent the majority of his career catering to the individual needs of companies of all sizes. For the past 16 years, Aaron has worked with leading-edge companies, providing prescriptive guidance to both the knowledge workers, those who actually produce the software, 
as well as the management side of the business, including CEOs, CTOs, and other executive staff. His experience has led him to do business with a variety of clients across financial services, supply chain, and insurance verticals. He is an enthusiast of agile technologies for delivery of software and has a special interest in helping companies understand the economics of technical debt. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. An interesting book. It's a... Wow, I'm I'm intrigued. Really? Well, yeah. What 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 is it that you find interesting about it? Well, just the generalness of it. I mean, it's a it's a broad topic. It is. It covers covers a, a variety of things, and it and it and it, I bet it tends to be quite philosophical. It, it is. I can't believe they let me write it. To be honest with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wake up in the morning and did I write that book? Did that really happen? Oh my god! You know, so 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 how did this happen and why did we get here? Um, you, you know, I think I woke up one morning after hearing the the you know eighteenth person in a month uh, you know ask me what utilization is and 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 why uh, sometimes uh, you know we have to take certain kinds of projects and and why. Um, you know, why things are the way they are in consulting, um, which is sometimes a little bit different than the way things are in a normal IT job, you know, kind of business aspects of consulting. And after having uh, essentially offered you know, people advice, I've been doing this for a while, and I have particular interest in the way that, that the operations of a consulting company runs, I figured, you know, probably the best thing to do is put some of these things down on paper and write a book about it and see if anybody would actually buy the thing. Um, so, you know, here I am. Um, apparently, uh, you know, I did some research, and nobody had really written a book about technology consulting as a business, at least in a while. I mean, people write about consulting generally. Um, people write about these kinds of business models, but nobody's nobody's really written one directed towards uh, you know your your everyday uh, .NET developer, your everyday Java developer, uh, to help them understand what really makes this kind of career a little bit different than, say, going to work for Microsoft or going to work for, you know, insert uh, brick-and-mortar company here? What makes this different? And frankly, you know, what are some of the benefits of this and, and what are some of the things that you can avoid to help uh, make your life a little bit less painful uh, in this occupation? So somehow, some way, I became a uh, careers writer. I, I'm, I'm not sure how that happened, but here I am. Yeah, so you're sort of like guidance counselor to the stars. It's kind of... <laughs> well, I wouldn't quite go that that, that strongly. Well, that's but, the first uh, thing that you know, came to certainly, mind. Yeah. Certainly, I think one of the uh, subversive reasons I, I wrote a book like this is, is too, um, you know, there are a lot of, not a lot, I'd, I'd probably say maybe, you know, 15% of companies in this business um, who who will take advantage of, I think, the naivety that we all have um, in this industry at some point if we've never been exposed to some of these things. So um, I, I would call it maybe guidance counselor or maybe, you know, in another way, just you know, watch out for the big, uh, you know, pit with the spikes in it over there. You yeah, know, that, right. that's, you know, one other reason I wrote the book is to help people avoid, uh, you know, really situations that, that can hurt them. To quote Pat uh, Hines, to help us navigate the labyrinth of pain. Yes. Precisely, precisely. Yeah, so, okay. why? Where? I guess where do we start at the beginning on this thing? Is it really uh, why would you hire a consulting company, or what sort of companies uh, are there out there? Right, right. 
Well, I mean, there's a whole chapter, and frankly, you know, when I look at the book, I, I know, why did I make that chapter two? You know, about why you'd hire a consulting company. I think obvious. There's obvious reasons why you'd hire a, a consulting company um, to do work. Mostly in the sense of if you're, you know, let's let's pick a, you know, general, you know. Brick and mortar ink, right? And there, there's some benefit you gain from having some kind of custom technology that somebody doesn't sell. Um, you can either go hire those people yourself. You can hire them for ten months, and then that might be all you need, and then you're done. Now you can't go out to the open market and say, "Oh, you know, I want to hire somebody for ten months and then let them go." Well, I suppose you could, um, but you're going to be kind of forming a team out of just a lot of. You know, people that don't necessarily know each other. And frankly, that's not what you do as that kind of company. You know, if you're brick and mortar Inc., you are not a builder of technology products. You didn't build your own building and you didn't make your own electricity. So why are you writing software? Precisely. Exactly. You don't need to necessarily write your own software. Now, on the other hand, there's not necessarily going to be a company to write software for, uh, you know, Microsoft, for example, or, or, or Sun or Oracle isn't going to write software that fits every single business that's out there. I mean, this is the basic business case for consulting. And so, you know, sometimes you have to hire a company like ThoughtWorks to, you know, or, or any of the other consultancies that are out there to go out and build a product for you or to go out and build a, you know, custom solution that, you know, makes it so maybe it works with other multiple solutions or adds some unique bit of value to your organization. That's the basic business case of consulting. Um, we could go into a lot more of it, but it's not a terribly exciting conversation. But, but it's certainly, you know, there's good reasons why these companies exist. And just to keep the plugs under control here, you've not always worked with ThoughtWorks. You were also with Magenic for quite a while. That I was, yes. Yeah. Any other firms? Like, you get around, right? I, 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 those are probably the two most recognizable names I, I would work for. I guess there's a third. Um, I worked for Arthur Anderson for quite a number of years before, um, you know, not so much as a, you know, in the software consulting capacity I do now. I was actually in a internal product group there, but I certainly learned a lot about the business of consulting. Uh, even as we were, you know, I don't know, helping Enron shred a bunch of documents and do a bunch of other very evil things, I guess, in the, in the <laughs> early uh, 2000s. But, really? uh, <laughs> no, I really didn't, you know, do any of that stuff. But, but certainly it, it is a business that's, uh, you know, I've had some experience in, in a number of capacities. I've worked for a couple smaller companies as well, um, names you probably wouldn't recognize or, you know, in some cases I'll, I'll keep from naming. Uh, but, but certainly an, enough to see how certain things happen in this, in this business as well. You know, I've got a lot of friends that have worked in this business and I've seen companies they've come from and, and some of the uh, stories they tell me, you know, I have a friend of mine, uh, who actually worked at a company where bathroom breaks were, uh, part of your time report. Oh, wow. And, and, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, we all hear these stories and so, you know, when I was composing my chapter, what I call the seven deadly firms, uh, what I was really doing is taking, you know, and if, believe me, if I've named the company, they're not one of <laughs> right, <laughs> the right, seven right, deadly right. firms in this list. Uh, but, you know, and if I haven't, maybe they are. Uh, but certainly when I've, when I've had, um, you know, some friends tell me some of their stories, that, that's where I started to categorize this into, you know, kind of the seven dysfunctions of consulting company that one can look for when they're evaluating whether they should join one or not. You call them the various, the, the seven anti-patterns of the tech consulting business. Let's talk about those. Okay. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, certainly, you know, there there are seven of them, and I'm going to start with some of the uh, you know least evil and work my way up to the most evil because that way people will have a reason to keep listening to this uh, you know show other than hearing my blathering about things. Um, but you know, if we wanted to go through the seven, I, I would start with maybe uh, you know talking about something I think we all have a little bit of experience with as consultants, something I like to call generally the body shop, you know, not the place that sells natural lotions and whatnot, but the consulting company that, uh, you know, represents this idea that, that developers are basically these units that have SKU codes over their foreheads that say, hey, I need a Java, Ruby, uh, you know, five years of experience, blah, 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 right? You know, add, you add seven different adjectives here, and I need one on Monday. Yeah. And that's all I'm, and that's all I'm buying, and oh, it's for a five-month contract. Okay, we've all seen these. I mean, if you go to Dice.com or any of the job site ads, I mean, you can kind of tell these companies because they, they're usually the ones with the largest number of acronyms, you know, on the job ad in terms of things you have to know to get a position there. Uh. Now, I'm of the opinion, and I, I state this in the book, that there's a, a fine reason for companies like that to exist. Um, you know, body shops are a great way for a company that needs to just hire a bunch of random people that have a very specific skill set. And, and clear at that level of the market. There's two things that happen sometimes at body shops, though, that, that you know, kind of patterns of behavior that sometimes they engage in. Not all the time, but sometimes. Uh, one of which is they do kind of the salary versus hourly bait and switch, where a body shop will call themselves such and such consulting, and they'll say, hey, you know, we're going to hire you for $80,000 a year. All they have is a five-month contract. Um, but they're not telling you that. They're just telling you, oh, we're going to hire you for $80,000 a year. And what they're really doing is they're saying, hey, we're going to hire you for – what they're really doing is they're giving you $40 an hour on a consulting contract, which you know, in a bad economy may sound good, but in reality is is a pretty poor level for an experienced uh, you know, developer. So – you know, essentially, it's a misrepresentation of the level of risk you're taking on because a body shop doesn't really have a salary gig that's going to go beyond the the initial bit of time. Um, so that's that's really kind of the biggest uh, dysfunction. There is they're really kind of rep- misrepresenting the level of risk you're taking on when you take on that position. So that, that's kind of the first big one. Okay, and that's um, like you said, this is minor evil. Starting with minor evil, working our way up to pure evil. And right, I think right. a part of this is just knowing as a as a contractor the gig you're getting into. Right. Here. Yeah. Know the nature of the beast. Right. Right. And and that's the thing. I mean, you know, you want to make sure you, uh, you know, when you're in the interview process, you know, knowing, you know, because most of us that have been in consulting a while, we know precisely what a body shop looks like. I mean, it, it's pretty obvious. Oh, this is real body shoppy. This is a requirement that seems. Uh, you know, awfully short term, and oh my gosh, there's no bench here, or there's no real office, or anything like that. Um, so, so to somebody that you know, as consultants, you might go, "Is anybody really that naive?" I, I can assure you, there's people that are that naive, yeah. or they see the dollar signs up in front. What will more commonly happen is there'll, there'll be some, you know, seventy-five dollar an hour 
gig that suddenly becomes a $150,000 a year job and they think, oh my God, I'm getting this great promotion. <laughs> no, you're not. Um, and and yeah. it's when the terms of the deal aren't established and the, the really uh, bad firms will just not tell you the terms of the deal because they're desperate to close something or they, they just landed five people and they have no other way to recruit those five people other than effectively lying to them. And, and you know, I assure you there are companies that will sink to that low. So, so yeah, that, that, yeah, that's really kind of the uh, what happens when you have a body shop. Right. Okay. Evil number two. Evil number two. Um, and again, this is this is on the kind of low level uh, of evil chart. I won't even call it evil. I'll just you know call it a um, the kind of place that you generally you know want to avoid because it's not going to do well for you as a consultant. And it's essentially the kind of place that decides it's going to compete on price. Um, you know, I, I would ask you guys, would you think that any one developer hour given knowledge of C-sharp 3.0 is equivalent to any other developer hour? I guess it depends on the guy, right? But, uh, it depends on the person, right? You know, yeah. so let, let's even say they have the equivalent years of experience, like eight years of experience in, you know, Curly brace languages ending with C sharp 3.0, one year of C sharp 3.0. Is that even equivalent? Yeah, still, uh, you know, it's not just about knowing the language. Right, right. There's a whole plethora of things about a person that, that you know, makes somebody a fit for a team or not. Right. Um, now, now what happens is there, there's companies that decide, you know what, we don't know how to compete there. So what we're going to do is we're going to eye ourselves towards, you know, selling to a piece of some organizations, and some organizations do this well. So I'm going to mention something called vendor management. Now, vendor management is effectively a procurement function for hiring people that will work on an hourly rate. Effectively, I almost like to call it hiring temps in a sense. Um, but many companies have this vendor management function, and, and some of the better ones understand these differences. So if you're in vendor management, please don't write me hate mail. Um, uh, but some, <laughs> some, some of these kinds of companies will, will say, you know what, we're just, you know, we're literally bonused on how low we can get the average rate for a given person. And so there is a market for people that will feed that kind of machine. And that market is really what I call cheap consulting, which is let's get them in, um, you know, let's not, you know, pay people terribly well. And honestly, you know, what you're getting is kind of the bottom end of the market. Your value as a developer is not going to get expressed in the work that you're going to do. Now, let's let's try to imagine what it's like to be that developer. Maybe you're trying to break into the business, you know, and maybe having that low rate. Is this your way of, of, of trying to get in? Fair right. enough. But, you know, is somebody really going to entrust, uh, you know, their, their important heart operation to the lowest paid doctor they can find? Yeah, it's it's not actually yeah. something you want to shop for the lowest bid on. Definitely, precisely. You don't you don't go out and buy the the cheapest uh, you, you know parachute that you can buy when you're going to go you know skydiving. I mean, you're 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 going to pony up. You're not going to just pay an unlimited amount of money, but you're also not going to you know go for the lowest bidder on something like that. Um, the problem is is that the kind of work that you tend to end up doing at these firms that try to compete on price tends to be low value work that isn't terribly good for your resume anyway. And so, you know, when I whenever anybody 
talks to me uh, about, you know, what kind of consulting firm should I join? I generally try to, you know, say, you know, have, ask around, you know, ask if they're doing a ton of work through vendor management, you, you know, and, and chances are every one of them is. I mean, heck, I mean, I, I know even the better consulting firms I've worked for have dealt with vendor management. It's a reality of the business. But if every single deal is going through that to the point where they don't have any other way to win business other than by price, you you really don't want to go work for a firm like that or really kind of hitch your wagon to that unless there's really no other options. Um, you, you know, and, and again, this you know, other than some of the other ones I might talk, I mean, this might be better than you know the next five. But other than that, yeah, I mean, this is not something that you generally want to do. It's, and it's an interesting thought that it goes back to uh, programmers don't just work for the money. Right. There's more to your job than that. Right. That, that what actually motivates you involves something larger than the wage, because otherwise we'd just be hacking on wages. And then and, and often there's places that don't, aren't necessarily the cheapest place, but are terrible places to work. But I don't think we've even gotten to those evils yet. Oh, well, we'll get there, I assure you. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but there is a point there in that, in that you know, let, let's, let's look at, you know, money is important. I'm not one of these people that says, oh, you know, we're, we're just artists. We're above money. Uh, yeah, you're not <laughs> you know, that guy. Most of us want to, you know, if nothing else, have the freedom to you make good decisions and 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 when i say freedom to make good decisions that means not be in a precarious financial position where you know you're literally living paycheck to paycheck and when you're in a position where you have to make a controversial decision uh you automatically have to just you know bow to the boss i mean we want to be able to say no and be able to walk away from our jobs and that requires having a certain amount of capital which means having a certain amount of money i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing but on the other hand, the work that we do, you know, I think a lot of us recognize there's only so much happiness you can buy with money. Um, you, you know, Bill Gates rich versus Larry Ellison rich, I don't think there's a big difference there in terms of material happiness, even though there's about $40 billion difference in net worth. Yeah, once um, you're at the point where you're crashing 747s recreationally, it doesn't really matter. Precisely, <laughs> you, you, you've got my point. So, you know, I think, you know, once you get to some basic level where you've got, you know, maybe not total financial independence, but certainly you're at a level where, you know, you kind of can feel like you can say no and you won't be uh, eating ramen for the next three months. I, I think once you get past that, yeah, we want meaning in our work. And if you're constantly doing this low value work, you know, getting back to the point of cheap consulting, um, that, you know, converting, you know, a dot net application for the, you know, 30th time, uh, adding absolutely no value other than making it so that it's supportable. Um, you know, that's work that we'll do, you know, when there's no other viable options. But, you know, as soon as there's something that's a little bit more interesting, say, writing a program that runs the electric grid uh, and saves, you know, the country a bunch of energy or, you know, something even well short of that, but a, beyond something that has little value whatsoever, I think... Those are the kinds of things that we want to do, not only just because it's good for us, because frankly, there's more economic value in doing that. There's more meaning to that. So, now, is this is it purely the the app you're writing, or is it being valued by the people that you're writing it for? Oh, I absolutely believe that's that's part of it as well. I mean, you, you know, if you're writing, well, let me contrast it this way. I mean, if you're writing that app, right, you know, but you're writing it for Doctor Evil, so yeah. you can control the power grid. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you, know, you know, maybe you don't want to be doing that. You know, you, you want to be doing it for, for people that are going to use your tools that you build for good. Um, and, and frankly, you want to be doing this with people that aren't jerks. I mean, if you're on, if you're on a day-to-day basis and, and you're working with people that are I'm going to say I'm going to say jerks. I mean, there's a good book called The No A Rule by yeah. Bob Sutton that I actually reference from from my book and and um you know, a lot of that holds true. I mean, you could be doing the most important stuff in the world, but if you're working with a bunch of, you know, a-holes for lack of a better word, um yeah, you you your your whole, you know, you know, you're just not going to be able to do very well. All right. You know, you're not going to be very happy. Love it. Yeah. We've all been there. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whose support this show would not be possible. Hey, how many times have you drowned into endless CSS classes just to change the color of a single element of your application UI? How many times have you had to ask your designer to create custom skins so that your UI controls match your company's brand identity? It's time to turn to a new page. Telerik has launched the Visual Style Builder for ASP.NET Ajax, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. Colorizing a complete skin at once has never been easier. Just move the color slider and all elements will shift their color spectrum accordingly. That's cool. If the colorization is not enough, you can fine-tune individual elements to perfection. Whether you want to change fonts and sizes, margins and padding, background colors, or just about any style property, it's all easy and intuitive through the Visual Style Builder's graphical interface. It sounds incredible. So let's go and check it out at stylebuilder.telerik.com. Hey, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Okay, that's two. <laughs> so we've got two. We've got two. We we we, we should we should move on. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, another company um, which I call Smelzer and Melzer Accounting. Um, now this might have a little bit of personal experience. I guess I can say this because Arthur Anderson no longer exists. And you know I saw a little bit of this, but I think more often, moreover, uh, I see this generally in in companies that are technology consulting companies that are too closely too closely tied to the uh, accounting firm for, that gave them birth. Um, and really, this isn't necessarily a case of bad intentions like a lot of these are, or a case of fundamentally broken business models. This can be done right, but it, you really have to take a look at the relationship between the accountants and the consultants and make sure it's a good relationship where both the you know kind of accounting partner in a firm like this and firms like this that are accounting firms, right? You know, you, you can kind of pick your big four and there's a number of smaller ones below that. And if you look on the internet, you can probably find out what their names are. But most of these companies have a structure where they have partners and partners run the company, they're, they're partnerships. And in such companies, the partners are kind of the combined salesperson slash um, relationship manager slash you know project boss, if you will. They're the person everybody tries to uh, please internally on the gig, other than the client who obviously everybody wants to make happy. Right. Um, which is, which is fine. I, I have no fundamental disagreement with that structure. Uh, the problem comes in is when the audit partner and the technology partner are two different people, and it's a firm where the the you know 
accounting side of the house or you know the the side of the house that isn't you know technology is controlling things right and so and so what happens and particularly in accounting firms because good accountants are trained to think on an annual budget cycle and that's that's what accountant and that's fine um, but what it does is it hurts your ability to react to the kind of change that we get as technologists i mean you know we have agile delivery techniques for some pretty good reasons, mostly because we're very unable to predict with certainty what's necessarily going to happen a year out or two years out or five years out. Um, you know, we, we all have our best laid plans, and, you know, as we've learned, uh, you know, those rarely uh, survive the first contact with the enemy. Right. Yeah, I think that's somebody's quote. I can't remember whose it is, but <laughs> I, I've heard this time and time again, and, and I've had it beaten into my head you know, prior to even joining ThoughtWorks or whatnot. But but certainly, you know, it's it's just something that I've done. I mean, I've actually had to try to do these project plans. I think back when I was at Arthur Anderson, we were building this big risk management application, and and I wrote a three year project plan that had you know, no more than two days on any particular technical uh, deliverable. And I still can't believe I actually bothered to write that whole thing. Um, <laughs> and and, and we, we actually vetted this with some level of seriousness. We were you know, moving around little, little bars on a Gantt chart. And you know, the reason we were doing this is because there was somebody up the chain that wanted to know precisely um, you know, how much we're going to spend every single month during this entire process and exactly what feature sets we were going to have so we could have it in a contract, so we can negotiate with a vendor, da-da-da-da-da. And I I generally find that, you know, it's bad enough if you have that kind of thinking when you're dealing with a client where you have to kind of pull them along and say, okay, let's fit this project into an, an accounting box so that we can make this work for the client within their accounting structure. Right. But it's a whole other level of problem when you also have to convince your firm internally that it's not a good idea to necessarily try to predict everything up front as well. Um, You know, trying to... You deal with that many stakeholders in that kind of situation, that becomes very difficult. Um, so that's what the first big kind of issue in these kinds of firms. But then secondly, and it's a more fundamental issue, is that you know, accounting firms don't necessarily understand what those kids are often doing in technology. Right. Um, and that which they don't understand, they start to not trust. And I think, frankly, that's what happens in a lot of these firms is that, you know, the cultures are very different. And if there's not a healthy uh, respect between these two groups, which often, frankly, there isn't, you know, you tend to end up with problems. And, and right. you know, one of the evidences of this was, you know, back in the 90s, we had the whole Arthur Anderson-Anderson consulting split, which was, you know, had a lot of causes, some of them financial, but a lot of them were cultural. It was just, a, you know, consulting and, and technology was a faster-moving kind of business than accounting. And, and when you have those divergent cultures, problems tend to appear. And so, you know, depending on the strength of the technology side, I say be very mindful of when you join an accounting firm to do technology consulting. But the, there's a fundamental conflict of interest here that that accounting is inherently conservative, and right. software development is inherently, let's say, enthusiastic. Like you 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 want to push the envelope, right? 
and the two just yeah, don't it, get it's along. About, it, you know, it took technologists see possibilities and say, wouldn't it be cool, da-da-da-da-da, you know, this is, this is, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could X? And you're right, you know, accounting and a lot of these other firms, they, they launch other kinds of businesses called risk management. They're really yeah. great at that because they can kind of look at the world and see what can we, you know, reduce in terms of risk, you know, and, and look at it that way. Um, seeing the world in terms of opportunities, I've always seen that as something that's, again, I could be proven wrong, but I've never seen accounting firms do that terribly well. No, so. not at all. But also, generally, uh, you create software to take a risk with a potential reward. You would never create software as a conservative thing. That's not a right. conservative thing to do. Absolutely. In fact, most people would say most software is a little like hedge fund investing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very risky. You know, we, we, we take the, you know, I mean, if you look at the, just the chaos, if you assume the chaos report is true, where only 30%, it's much more like venture capital investing to a lot of people than it necessarily, than accounting, which is a very different risk reward uh, thing. So yeah, just making those two cultures work together is, is very, very difficult. I've seldom seen it done well. One of the other is going to lose, and it's probably not the accountants. Probably not. No, because you're right, and the accountants have a good reason to have a relationship on an annual basis. I mean, they're in a boring 6% a year business. Um, they've got a long-term relationship with a CFO somewhere who controls money. Um, you know, now there's cases where that you know runs counter. I mean, you know, there, there's cases where the you know, the business consulting end of the organization ended up with a CEO relationship and could trump that. But again, it's rare, and you know, it's you're probably more the exception than the rule if you're that. Right. Okay, layer three down, four to go. <laughs> Let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. All right. Well, uh, we're gonna we're gonna move to a, a slightly. Um, more interesting company I call Push the Skew Consulting. Um, Push the Skew Consulting is this company who is a, uh, well, probably started out as a software company, and it's tied to a software company uh, somehow. And, you know, I actually believe these kinds of companies are fine in, in a lot of contexts. And they do a lot of things very well. You know, if you, you know, if you go to, you know, insert, you know, Oracle, you know, Sun, I don't care who it is, um, and you go to them to see their consultants, what you're going to get, most likely, again, you know, it could be proven wrong, but most likely you're going to get very good advice about their products. Well, yeah, Microsoft has a consulting arm. What'd you yes, think they, they were going to sell you? Right. Um, they're probably not going to sell you the Oracle database. Yeah, that not often. so much. I'm <laughs> just guessing. Only on Fridays. <laughs> call me crazy, uh, but but you know I, I I also am realistic and 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 I think you know there there's you know going to a company like that as a buyer is a fine thing to do so long as you're not looking for uh, independent advice about software choices. Right. If you're going to a company like that for independent advice about software choices, you really need to look at you know what you're doing and you know think about that for a second. Um, so. You know, which is fine. And I actually advise people, you know, go work for a push the skew type company for a while. 
um, you know, there's no better way to build relationships with people that are close to a product team, you know, and get, you know, a nice name on your resume. And it's a perfectly good place to go until the point where you need to be seen as an independent technologist who has, who's giving people advice about what technology stack they should be considering. Right. Yeah. Right, because as soon as you you start doing that, you're inherently in a conflict of interest. No matter how hard you try to not be, um, chances are, if your uh, you know, path to winning new business is through um, through a Microsoft or through an Oracle, I don't care who it is. If your path to winning business is through there, what you're probably going to have is somebody from that company saying, how much influence revenue have you given us? And right. based on that amount of revenue is how helpful they're going to be. And you're, you're ultimately going to have a very different view of the world than if you were giving independent advice. And so, you know, the, if you're going to a company like that with the goal of being a consultant in the capital C sense of the word, where you're being asked to give those kinds of recommendations, I think you're probably going to be disappointed. Because even if you try to give the independent advice, what you find yourself in a position of is, is do I choose the right thing or the expedient thing? And you find yourself yeah. there over and over and over again, and it becomes very frustrating. Well, the thing um, is, if you do give the independent advice, then the sponsor vendor is mad at you. Right. Precisely. As long as you didn't choose their product. Right. You're basically and, and doomed. Believe me, they, they can get mad at you pretty quickly. You yeah. can even just, you know, say, you know, some improvement opportunity sometimes you can make the, you know, they, they'll get mad at you sometimes. So you have, you know, yeah. exactly. You have to be very careful. Yeah. yeah it's a, so uh, it's just, it's not just about the, hang on a second. I'm going to try to say this best. How can I say this without being overt? You know, the, it's as much about the politics of it as it is the, you know, the the technology, the organization, knowing what's going on. I was right. I was taking a uh, in college. I was taking a systems analysis class, and the first thing the teacher uh, handed out was an organizational chart. <laughs> it says right. before you do anything, you need to know who these people are you're dealing with. Ask for an organizational chart. Right, right. And, and and understanding that, you know, in terms of, you know, who is at the top when you're at a push the skew company, who's at the top of an organizational chart, even, you know, you're, you're really, even if you are in an independent company, you, you know, you really kind of have a dotted line into your, you know, benefactor or whatever the right yes. word is, you know, to, to your, you know, person who's feeding you a lot of your business. And so, you, you know, once you realize that, you realize, you know, you work for two conflicting, uh, you know, parties that, that, that are where there's you know, big, big interest conflicting. That right. becomes something that's very uh, hard to manage over time. Although at the same time, if somebody hires Microsoft Consulting mm-hmm. that then brings you in and right. expects you to, you know, judge Oracle fairly, who's deluded here? Yeah, I, I think clients that ask for that, frankly, deserve what they get. <laughs> yeah, well, just... <laughs> uh, you, you, you know, I mean, you know, it, it is pretty amazing that this happens. I, I, I'm, you know, I've seen it happen a couple times, to be honest with you, and, and it just boggles my mind that, you know, that the, anybody would put themselves in that position. Because at the same time, you want those guys, if you're working on the Microsoft stack, and you want advice in that stack. Right, right. Yeah. And that's that's a perfectly good thing to do. But again, I would even go so far to say as sometimes there can be even conflicts within a stack. Sure. 
and and I would say go with that firm because they have the, they have the expertise. I mean, you know, when you're that close to to the mothership, if you will, um, you're you're probably getting you know. Connections with more people, and you're probably getting people that might even be close to product teams and so forth. So I don't say don't go there. I say you know, that's fine. But but even within that, you know, you might have you know what is the thing that the sales force is being uh, you know bonused on this quarter. You know, is it you know solution A or solution B, both of which are you know viable you know, solutions to a problem you might be facing, right? You know, and, and even within that, you sometimes have to just always ask the question as a buyer, you know, is this really the best thing for me? Is there any possible conflict here? And, and maybe, you know, if, if I even smell the, 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 the smallest scent of one, you know, maybe I should ask somebody else and get a second opinion and actually listen to the second opinion. Don't just go by who's taking me out to the better golf course, but you know, really kind of ask somebody to show the decision tree which they used to get to this technology and drive it back to basic business drivers, which is kind of how we should be making these decisions anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, rather than making them on vaporware claims and other things that you know, marketing materials that somebody might throw at you. Although to the point. In 99% of the cases, if a guy picked Microsoft Stack over to Oracle Stack or vice versa, do you really believe either one of them couldn't be successful? I mean, the reason both right. these things exist is they can actually build apps. Right, right. And and that's, you know, and there, there's some fair measure to that. I mean, sometimes the decision factors, when you look at something like this, are not just what's inherently technically superior. I mean, there's... You know, to bring this back for a second, I hear people use the term generally best practices. You know, what is the best X generally, globally, right? And, and that's always a, a loaded and almost completely incorrect question. Yeah. You know, if, I, if I've got a client and I go see them and they're, you know, on the Microsoft stack for the most part for a current app that maybe we're coming in and, and you know, adding something to, there might be something that's better in theory about the Ruby stack, let's say. Um, you know, maybe, oh, but we love Ruby on Rails. But wait a second, we have a solution here that's already based on Microsoft. And we've got this need to do some integration. So for this particular client, certain choices are better based on not just what's inherently better, but what, you know, is also there at the, on the ground. You know, what's the skill set of the people in the organization? Well, you know, there's a lot of factors that play into this beyond what's just, you know, in theory, better absent other considerations. So, you know, again, that that gets into independent advice. You know what I mean? And, and having somebody that actually comes in, understands your business, and and takes all those factors into account more than you know, am I going to get a commission based on this, or am I going to you know increase my influence revenue for the quarter uh, based on this decision? You know, those are the things I'm looking for. Is you know, what are the business drivers that led you to choosing X? And if those aren't things that I care about, I want to know about that. When you get questions like that, usually the answer is mu, M-U, which from Japanese means without or sometimes emptiness. In the context, it means unasked the question. Right. It's a, it's a nonsense question. Yeah, sometimes. does the dog have a Buddha nature or not? Right. Mu. <laughs> when did you stop? When did you stop beating your wife? Yeah, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, it's... Unasked the question. Yes. Yeah. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, 
provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. Actorreports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. All right, what number are we up to? Well, I think we've got two more. You know, this is getting into, you know, we started with companies that you probably just would maybe want to work for once for a couple of years versus, you know, companies you'd want to spend your whole life at. Um, once you get into companies that revolve around, um, you know, one person and have this sense of if you ever disagree uh, with the canonical truth of this one person that you are not to be trusted and, and that you are... Uh, you know, the opinions aren't, you know, judged based on, you know, within the company, based on what you're actually able to do, but just based on how much you agree uh, with one particular charismatic individual. Um, that becomes just kind of a miserable place to work. Um, you, you know, and it, it becomes, again, you know, on the topic of independent versus dependent advice. Um, this is one where instead of having you know dependent advice based on the, you know the product company that you're ultimately uh, you know praying to every uh, morning, it's your, your advice is basically based on you know faith around one individual, you know your, your your personality cult leader, and you're not able to give any other advice independent of that. So um, again, it's one of the you know it's one of these kinds of places where. You know, are you a consultant? Are you able to actually give an independent opinion or not? Bozo. Bozo. <laughs> Bozo consulting. Now, that, that was personality cult consulting, which, you know, you know again, is, is one of these kinds of places where, you know, it's just not a good place to work. Um, you, you know, and you're not going to give good advice. Bozo is this whole, my God, you know, <laughs> what, let's have a business model where, you know, it starts out, at Bozo, it's a lot of fun. You know, it starts out, we, we, we sell a project, but we don't know that what the limitations of software development are. Whenever, whenever somebody breaks the build, you hear, ah, ah, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Bozo really kind of starts with, and this is just a moniker I give for generally what I call a sales-oriented organization, you know, which is every organization needs to be based on sales. But if you're based on sales to the exclusion uh, of any kind of, you know, delivery questions, yeah. what you're going to end up yeah. doing is, <laughs> you know, hey, you know what? We sell, but we don't give. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can pay us money, but you're gonna, we're not going to give you anything for it. <laughs> well, well, that, well, that's one way to do it. My, my fear is really the opposite. I mean, you know, think about it like this, though. I mean, if you are a sales guy and you are uh, compensated based on revenue, right? You make a commission, maybe it's 3% of all the revenue you bring in. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, you're, you know, basically your incentive system is that you're going to say, Hey, you know what? I'll sell 10 million, I'll sell $15 million worth of delivery, how much it will ultimately cost. I'll sell it for $10 million. And so long as I just sell more, I make more money. So I don't care whether what I sell is realistic or not. I don't care if what I sell, right. you know, really requires a ton of overtime or really just isn't possible. You know, maybe I'll just sell, you know, I'll make a copy of Google in three months. <laughs> 
you know, or, or, or I'll, I'll sell that we can make a new operating system in six months. I mean, it's... How about when the sales guys are talking to a customer, a potential customer on the phone, and the customer says, well, can it do X? And they'd say, well, of course it can. And if it can, it better by next month or heads are going to roll. Yeah. You know, they, they're always promising, uh, you know, what, yeah. what the developers can do. Yeah, and it's the easiest thing to do, right? I mean, you know, totally. if you're just if if you're not if you don't have any kind of incentive to to not do that, okay, to have well, you know, the delivery came back and you know we couldn't do that. If there's not something to stop you from you know, the, the the negative consequences of what you promise, then what you end up with is bozo consulting, and and, and that's sadly something that you see now. Oftentimes, it's not that blatant, but what it does, you know, the kinds of companies that do this. You know, start out by, you know, they'll say, well, you know what, everything that we do, we'll do at fixed bid. You know, they'll, 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 they'll just blanket say stuff like that, such that you, you end up in, in a bad position from the start. You know, not that doing fixed bid work is a bad thing, but we've seen how these things, you know, they'll, they'll promise fixed bid work for something that's going to take two years, it's likely to change, and those kinds of things. And so what happens is that you just end up with this big disjoint against what's going on you know, in terms of what you can deliver and, and what's being sold. And there's no feedback mechanism that makes sure that that can be a check on that process. And so you start doing that. Everybody's well-intentioned, though. Everybody's like, hey, you know what? We're going to try to do what we can to make this up, and we'll just absorb it into the project plan. And, and you know, there's no real thought towards, you know, how are we going to actually deliver this, I guess, is the distinguishing feature of a company like this. But this is why it's bozo, not Dr. Evil. You're not right. malicious. You're stupid. Exactly. Exactly. You just created a scenario where you can't win. Yeah. Right. Right. I think uh, trying to trying to remember. I think it was George Carlin who said, "You know, there's there's people that are stupid. There's people that are evil. There's people that are nuts." <laughs> <laughs> I think we've talked about nuts previously. This is just stupid. Okay, you know, okay. We'll talk about evil next. But yeah, this is just you know people that are stupid. You know, they, you know they, they, they'll just you know sell things that don't exist and they'll you know, make assumptions about what people can do about, you know, well, you know what, you know, the, the hours from 40 to 60 of a software developer in a week are the same as zero to 40, or that we can, you know what, let's try to make a baby in one month by having nine women try, you know, at the same time. You know? Well, it's sort of like Hanlon's razor, right? Isn't that yeah. never a tribute to malice, that which can be adequately explained by stupidity? Precisely, precisely. Yeah. And, you know, it's a subtle distinction, but, you know, the problem is usually the same, is, you know, the problem in a company like this, and you can usually kind of find out who these people are because they'll make all sorts of big promises on their website that talk about using us involves no risk, yeah. which would be a nice fantasy land, but the reality is, is that any technology project has risk, and so if somebody's figured out a way to indemnify away all risk, they're probably lying to you, or at least they're, they're not very smart about what they're you know, talking about. And so what will happen is that they'll say that, you'll see that, and you'll generally know that this is the kind of company that just promises anything. And, and yeah, it's just generally a kind of place to avoid if it seems like, as a buyer, this smells a little bit too good to be true. Yeah, right. <laughs> that just smells too nice. Yeah. Exactly. So, going on to fear consulting. Ooh. Fear consulting. Yes. This is the this is the company that, you know, a friend of mine, you know, I think we were at a uh, Twin Cities Code Camp in 2007. We were at the uh, pre-party and 
they were describing the, the company where you know people trade you know billable hours like like they trade cigarettes in prison you know you can hey if you if I'll give you this billable hour if you give me some help on this and you know where literally the company did specific things to try to make it so that you would never want to leave the company. They would basically, I don't know if you've ever heard of like Stockholm syndrome where you start to love your captors and this whole, there's this whole dynamic you can have with people where if you're enough of a tyrant and you can beat people down where, well, where they will stop to see themselves as any kind having any kind of, I don't know, self-worth. And it seems all kind of like pop psychology, but there is a certain element of truth, truth to this where you know you look at these situations you can get in with fear consulting and, and literally look at a company that has as a strategy um, fear is a motivator I guess that's the the bit that we want to really focus in on is that if you look if, if the kind of people that work and manage this company are saying you know what what we're going to do is we're going to tell everybody that their jobs are always in question that they, you know, the minute they hit the bench, there's a good chance that they're probably going to be, you know, laid off or fired. And that, you know, even even good times are constantly complaining about how bad the market is and, you know, how, you know, all the jobs are going to India and China. We're just going to make it seem really dire so that the consultants that work for us are going to go above and beyond, work 80 hours a week because they're constantly afraid that, you know, we're going to, go away, okay, that, that there's going to be no more development work. It's a nice wedge to do certain kinds of things for a while that will, you know, fear is a great motivator for sprinting in a short term. Mm. But you can't do it day after day. Right. Now, what happens, right? What happens when you're constantly in fear? Well, you know, it's kind of like constantly trying to sprint is that, you know, after about 200 yards, you know, you're not going to be able to sprint anymore, and suddenly you're just burnt out, and suddenly your work product is just very bad. It becomes very office space like where, oh, you know you know what, I'm just going to do enough not to get fired. And so you kind of see two ends of fear consulting, this kind of sprint, you know, the, the boss is watching over me, let's get some work done, and then a lot of slacking when the boss isn't looking, because ultimately, you know, there's just no, there, there's no more uh, source for you to have that inspiration or mental energy to get anything worthwhile done. Um, certainly, it's not going to be the kind of place where you're going to have great affection for the people that you're working for you know, because you're constantly in fear. So it's not the kind of place where you're going to innovate or you know, do very much that's very interesting. It really is kind of an awful, awful place to work. And, but what's sad, and I, I wish I didn't have to have a, a you know, section on a company like Fear Consulting, but these places exist. I've actually seen internal memos shared with me from people saying, you know, let, literally, let's try to keep these people in fear so that they'll work an extra 10, 15 hours a week. I've seen this happen. It's very yeah. scary to imagine companies would do this. But if yeah. you think about it, there, you know, there are people who think this is a good idea. And perfectly legitimate as to, in terms of business. They think that. Sure. That's the way to go. Yeah. So is that the seven? That is the seven. Those are the seven deadly firms. 
I'm sure somebody could come up with an eighth or ninth if they really tried, but you know, you know, seven is a nice theme for the book. You know, I've also got the, you, you know, the, the uh, career limiting moves chapter, which kind of takes you know bad things that you can do in your career and puts them in the context of the seven deadly sins. You know, things like sleeping with coworkers and stuff like that. It's a, you know, if you want to learn <laughs> yep. about ways to screw up your career, it's a, it's also a great book for that. You know, certainly, uh, you know, reading, you know, I believe it's chapter nine in the book is fun for for that aspect. Um, so. Yeah, but certainly, uh, certainly a theme. So now that we've got the sort of seven things you can do wrong, so what does a good consulting firm look like? If you're going to do it right, what do you do? Well, it looks like ThoughtWorks. <laughs> <laughs> plug, plug, plug. I'm supposed to say that because you know I, I work for ThoughtWorks, and so right. why would I join them if I didn't think they were they were good? Uh, but no, I, I think even beyond that. You know, I do. There's two ways I answer this question. I mean, you know, certainly, and I also you want to do a shout out to my former company, Magenic. They were also a firm that that um, you know when I worked for them, you know, had all the, a lot of these good qualities of, of I think ultimately what I talk about in Appendix A in my book, which is a, a chapter I call Consultopia, the the ideal consulting firm. Um, what makes an ideal consulting firm? I think there's really you know three main things that, that give it an idealness to it. One is oh, I, the, I, good consulting firms tend to select people for um, emotional intelligence in addition to you know, actual you know yeah. IQ kind of traditional intelligence. Um, mostly on the premise that that to, to have a project that runs effectively, you need people that work well together. If you have you know as Bob Sutton said, you know a hole. Uh, on your team, it, it, it's kind of like poison on the team. It, it, actually, you can have a net negative. I think it was somebody, Neil Ford, I think, has this idea called a net negative producing programmer. It might be, I think that's Neil. Um, and if you don't have a firm that espouses um, having people that work well together and having a selection for in, you know, emotional intelligence in addition to IQ, you tend to get just dysfunctional teams. And I'll, I'll tell you what, you could have the best methodology in the world, you could get everything else right, you get the, the team composition wrong, your, your project's going to fail. Right. It, it's that simple. I mean, yeah, it, it will implode. It will, you know, people will be demotivated. You won't get the near the kind of productivity you need. And eventually there, there will be a competing group that will get that productivity and you will lose business and you will sink. So, you know, I see that, you know, just selecting for people that work well together, that have good mutual respect for people and don't, you know, aren't, aren't there just to, you know, step on others to rise to the top? I mean, kind of a basic thing. Um, you know, second thing, and it's somewhat related, but it's also a little bit different, is transparency is really important. You know, what, what we're dealing with here in this business is we're dealing with other professionals. And if you assume that we're all professionals, um, I assume that having more information about how the business is doing is better than less. And the reality is that some companies will share that, and having a good sense for how the business is doing allows us as professionals to make better decisions. You know, if you, if somebody, if you're, when your parents, when you're growing up, just said, do what I say because I told you so, right. that was much less effective than do what I say because if you run across that street and the cars are coming, you're going to get your, you're going to get hit by a car, right? You know, and the same thing can be said for if your consulting company is losing money, right? You know, and you know it's losing money or you know the utilization is low, um, maybe it's not a good time to ask to come off of a 
project that may not be ideal, but isn't horrible either. Um, right. So just being able to have good information to manage your career requires uh, transparent. The consulting company you're working with be transparent about its financials, be transparent about you know how long your gig is so that you know can plan around that and tr- basically treat you like a grown up with information you know we don't need to be treated with kid gloves so that we have no idea how the company's doing and then wake up one morning and finally find that you know we're out of money and can't pay consultants anymore right yeah padlocks on the door cuz the sheriff sees the property <laughs> Been there. Thank you. Exactly. Uh, Okay, so is there a limit to transparency, too? What about uh, knowing everybody's salary? Oh, maybe you did read part of my book. I actually take a position that that's not a bad thing to do. Yeah? And I know that puts in, there's a lot of people that will say you are either nuts or, you know, you're, you're naive. But... Honestly, I, I, I don't see too much of the downside, you know, uh, mostly because I think if most of us, you know, the only time where I would see a downside to that is, frankly, in companies that are kind of dealing with a really bad system in terms of salaries anyway. You know, if you've got, if you've got a company where you've brought in, let's say you've just come out of a recession, right? We might be out right. of a recession in two or three years, and you've you know, given a bunch of pay cuts that you never really, you know, put back. Um, but then suddenly the market heats up again and suddenly you have to overpay for people. Okay. Right. Um, now, if you're in that position and you've got something to hide, <laughs> of course you're not going to be for, you know, salary transparency because, you, you, you know, ultimately that would mean a bunch of people are going to be mad, right? You know, that's, that's the big argument. Well, you know, people will be upset because they suddenly find out they make less money. Um, yeah, you know what? They'll find this stuff out anyway. For one, you know, we have sites like Glassdoor.com. Any company of any kind of reasonable size, you can probably find a lot of this information out. Maybe not exact numbers, but certainly right. you can know what the general numbers are, and you'll know whether you're above and below with a little bit of research. Two, you know, it's kind of like just finding out everybody's shoe size at, you know, at, at some point. You know, you find the numbers are within, you know, a few thousand here or there, and and at some point. Do you really care? You, you, you know, if, if you had it in a, in a spreadsheet, you might be shocked for like a day. And then either ah. you're going to get over it, which is what most people will do, or you're going to obsess about it, which is, you, you know, just I don't even know if you want people that would obsess about that kind of thing in your company anyway. So, you know, just because it's, it's such a, you know, there, there's so many factors that go into that. Right. Um, and ultimately, I think there's some benefits. You know, if you are the most expensive guy in, in the company, you might. Now, again, I wouldn't want to manage by fear, but certainly you would want to know if you're the most expensive person so that maybe you should ask for, you know, either make sure that you're delivering that value or, or ask for a pay cut to be more, you know, levered in, you know, so that you're not as r- at risk. I mean, you, you, being the most expensive you know, person in a company below maybe management or whatnot can actually feel like a burden once you know that because, you know, suddenly, oh my God, I got to produce this value above what other people are doing. Right. So it can be a nice right. check and balance, I think, for people as well. But on the other side of that is it's incentive to others too. So whatever I've got to do what that guy's doing to make that kind of money. Yeah. And that's, I don't think that's, a, that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it, it, it's a big taboo in our society. At least in the you know U.S., you know, North America, maybe even Western Europe to some degree, uh, society where oh my God, we don't want to talk about that kind of thing. Um, you know, but but frankly, you know, I think that's probably why we get the reaction we get. You know, and, and, and like I said, once once everybody kind of knows, they've I've heard they've done some experiments in places where this worked out pretty well. Um, they've probably also done some experiments where there was a lot of disparity, where there were a lot of hurt feelings. So I'm, right. I'm sure the jury's out on this. But you know, I, I honestly. 
you know, I have a hard time seeing the downside to this. Well, Aaron, we're just about out of time. In fact, we're just a little over. So, uh, is there anything that we missed that we want to want to end on? Sure, sure. You, you know, on the note of the last part of you know, Consultopia is really kind of you know finding a company that has work with meaning and gets away from you know having a mission statement. You know, that that's something we do talk about a little bit, and so you, you know that is something that I think is is pretty important, kind of the third pillar there. But but more generally, I think you know just. You know, I encourage anybody, obviously, to, to take a look at the book and see if, you know, take a look at some of the advice there and see if it might help them in their career. It's certainly something that uh, I enjoyed putting together. Um, certainly, there's a reason I try to yell out to the world that, hey, you should know how consulting works because, boy, you know, there, there's ways that you can really be taken advantage of if you don't. Um, and understanding this business and being enthusiastic about this business isn't necessarily uh, a bad thing. Um, so, you know, I, I would, that's kind of my closing thoughts anyway. All right. Aaron Erickson, thank you very much. Great book, and uh, I'm going to enjoy reading it. Thank you so much, guys. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.